Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello and welcome. Bonjour et bienvenue to a very special episode of The Rest is History. To a very special episode <laughs> of uh, The Rest is History. Excellent translation. Um, so last week, Dominic, we were in Amsterdam. We and were. today, um, as people can probably guess from Dominic's flawless French, <laughs> we are in the City of Light in Paris. Um, and we're continuing our European adventure thanks to Wise. Oh, yes. So Wise, Tom, I mean, yeah. we know what Wise is. It's the account that lets you send, spend and receive money internationally. It is. That's why it's used by 16 million people, Dominic, all over the world. Yeah, it's built to save you money, Tom. You can probably hear some sirens in the distance. That is, that's Parisian colour, isn't it, Tom? It really is. Um, and uh, we've come here today to talk about um, one of the kind of the great scenic episodes in Parisian history, topic that you've chosen, Les Evenements, the events of 1968. Yes. So students hurling cobblestones and people in... Polo necks, doing <laughs> dressing as clowns, <laughs> all that kind of thing. Yeah, so, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. May 1968. So here we are. We are literally sitting opposite the Sorbonne, the most famous university in France. We're in the Samuel Paty Square. We're facing the great facade of the Sorbonne, this um, ancient you know, university uh, founded, I think, the 13th century, something like that. Yeah. One of the oldest universities in Europe. And if you'd been here in, in May 1968, yes, the air would have been thick with the, the stench of tear gas. There would have been barricades. Did you just say that? The air would be thick with the stench of tear gas. I did say that. Brilliant. Yeah, I did say Tell yeah. you're a great writer. Yeah. <laughs> what? See, this is the colour that people tune into the rest <laughs> is history is. for. Um, so people would have been throwing cobblestones at the, uh, at the police. There were the, 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 the heady scent of revolution in the air, Tom. And, uh, or was there? Well, this is the thing. So this is the question, isn't it? Yeah. So to Anglo-Saxon listeners, what the French would call Anglo-Saxon listeners anyway, um, this is absolutely classic French behavior. I mean, this is all that we expect from sort of post-war France. But at the time, actually, France didn't really have a reputation for youthful protest. So the revolutions of the 19th century were in the past. You know, it's a long time since the Paris Commune, let alone the French Revolution. Since the Second World War, France had actually, or French youngsters, had actually been reasonably quiescent. So France had had, you know, constitutional turbulence. So 1958, because of the war in Algeria, Charles de Gaulle being brought to power. But that wasn't really driven by university students or anything like it. Well, I remember um, when the Beatles played in Paris, they were amazed. It was the only place where there was no screaming. Right. Well, that tells the same story. So France's reputation in the 1960s, or the reputation of French youngsters, and of the sort of mood of the French public was that it was actually quite staid. Because there's this famous headline, isn't there, in Le Monde in March 1968, saying that what defines our public life today is boredom. It's boredom, exactly. And actually, even at that point, you know, there's been lots of protests in the United States. There's been the civil rights movement, marches against the Vietnam War. But all the coverage in France often says, well, French kids would never do this because they are actually much too busy getting degrees and going into the workforce. And we're not like that. And actually, de Gaulle 
So Charles de Gaulle, the great hero of the liberation and of resistance to the Nazis in the Second World War. So he's president of France. We'll come on to him much later, in particular in the second And sees episode, himself as the embodiment of as France. As the embodiment of France, exactly. He's in his 70s. De Gaulle is the figurehead. And he had said in 1966, he described the young layabouts in England it's because England has lost its sense of responsibility, its sort of sense of moral discipline. He complains about the long hair. The long hair, exactly. But in France, his, his argument would be, well, in France, we don't have this problem. We still have a sense of France, and it's... And it's um, a certain sense of France. A certain sense of France, as Julian Jackson's a biography is called, and that's the opening line of de Gaulle's memoirs, isn't it? All my mm -hmm. life, I've had this certain sense of France. And France, in 1968, is a country, actually, that has done very well. So it has decolonized, I mean, in a very bloody and turbulent fashion. But that's a really important part of the story to come, isn't it? That, so they've, they were the colonial power in Vietnam. Yes. And they skedaddled from that after a humiliating defeat. Yeah, Dien Bien Phu. And then they also had to pull out of Algeria, well, which had been part yeah. of... Which been part of France. Part of the fabric of the French nation. Yes. And very traumatic for all concerned. Exactly, exactly. And that's what had brought de Gaulle to power, that he had resolved the Algerian crisis effectively by ending it, by, you know, pulling out of France and a million people leaving Algeria and moving largely to the south of France or to the suburbs of Paris. But France has done well economically, um, socially, since the end of the Second World War. We are at the, the sort of towards the end or sort of midway towards the end of the, what they call the Trente Glorieuses, 30 Glorious Years. So every year the economy grew by about 5%. There's full employment. There's a real sense that, you know, today's young generation will be far better off than their parents. We'll come on to this later, particularly when we get on to the, the strikes of, of 1968. Lots of people from rural France, which had long been far more agricultural than Britain, lots of people had moved to the cities and were in these suburbs that we're all very familiar with on the, the Bonlieu. The Peripherique. Yeah, exactly. And, and these suburbs um, are, are, are pretty grim, aren't they? They're kind of utilitarian, uh, lacking the kind of joie de vivre of a... <laughs> right, right. I mean, arguably... Of, of, of a charming French village, or indeed the centre of Paris. Well, Tom, we are, I mean, we're sitting here facing the Sorbonne, and, you know, it's a beautiful day, early summer day in Paris, blue sky. It's very, what's her name in Paris? Emily in, Paris. Emily in Paris. Emily, Emily, in, Paris. Emily in Paris. That's not, I'd never thought of the rest of <laughs> history in that light before, but no, but Paris looks wonderful. And one reason it looks so wonderful, I would argue, is because basically the city decanted all its problems to the, to the periphery. And among those problems is the question of, or it's not just of workers, but of how do you house students? Because there's a kind of massive boost to the student population. Yeah, so there is. the Sorbonne, this ancient medieval university, is inadequate. There's not enough space to house all the people who want to come and study in Paris. Exactly, exactly. So there'd been a huge baby boom in France, far bigger than in Britain. Um, they had raised the school leaving age, so far more people in education. In 1968, the number of students in French universities had doubled since 1960 and trebled since 1950. That's far greater rate of expansion than anything in Britain. So what had happened is that the French government had built annexes and overspills and things in basically porter cabins and yeah. kind of awful kind of 60s kind of tower blocks and things, often on the edge of cities. They recruited hastily lots of new lecturers and teachers who actually often weren't very good. Yeah. And the students, I mean, this is, this is a perennial problem, by the way, of French education. I mean, I remember when I lived in France in the 1990s, students were complaining about this all the time, that they were taught in overspill lecture theatres, 
Uh, the lectures were on loudspeakers. They never even got to see, let alone to speak to the lecturer or the professor. This is particularly an issue in the late 1960s. I came across an amazing statistic that even though the number of, of students in Britain in the 60s was a fraction of those studying in France, that um, France granted half as many degrees as British universities did in the 60s, basically because three quarters of French students just chucked their courses just in out. because they were, yeah. they were so bad. And because they're, they're so miserable. So are these students sort of radical? Some are. There's a small minority who are radical. But I th and often one of the things that radicalizes them, you mentioned Vietnam. So Vietnam is definitely there in the background. They are influenced by what they're seeing on TV um, in, in the United States. Because they, presumably the French have a particular sense of, of uh, responsibility. Uh, responsibility about Vietnam. I think they have an interest in it, yeah. actually, rather than a sense of responsibility, it's fair to say. I think they also... There's a, obviously a very, very, how should I put it, a pungent strain, Tom, of anti-Americanism. Yeah. Isn't it? By the way, we're competing with a bin. There's a bin lorry. This, is, this has plagued us, actually, since Amsterdam, Tom. It's always the way, isn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, everyone knows this who does live recordings. But there is also a mood, um, more generally, beyond the universities, that yeah. people want to consign de Gaulle to the dustbin of history. Well, he's old. He's old. So there's this... Um, a guy is fined 500 francs, I, I learned, for shouting at de Gaulle in his car as it went by. <laughs> Retire. Right. So, I mean, that's fine for that. That's yeah, harsh. I mean, that's quite, it is harsh, isn't it? It seems quite repressive by British standards. That's one thing that people also, I mean, they don't get about France today, even. France is a much more hierarchical society, much more paternalistic than often people in, sitting in Britain who have the fantasy of France believe. So it's still a very Catholic country. It's, it's sort of officially, at least, not a diverse country. I mean, there are a lot of new immigrants and things, but they don't They've feature. all been parked on the periphery. They've well. all been locked up in their tower blocks. Um, there is a real sense of deference to authority far greater, I would say, than in Britain or the America. And the so therefore, time. presumably, rebelling against it becomes more fun. Exactly. So actually, even though at the beginning of 1968, all the sort of talk is well, there's stuff going on in America and so on, but it will never spread to France because, you know, we're not like that and our kids aren't like that. I think particularly in these places where nobody really looks. So out in the suburbs, in these kind of jerry-built, sort of breeze block, unfinished building site universities, there is a sense of discontent that is mounting. And Tom, all it takes is the trigger. And as we see the bin lorry go around the corner, <laughs> I think we should seize this moment to go and go to a cafe. Let's walk through the Latin Quarter. And so perhaps uh, in, in a cafe, we could have, just before we get on to the um, explosion, yeah. perhaps could we have just a brief chat about uh, French philosophy and absurdist theatre? Well, that sounds awful. Um, <laughs> yeah, but we'll be sitting in a, you know, in a cafe on the Rive Gauche. It would be great. I knew, I knew you would try to bring I know. that up. So let's right. go and do that. Well, let's go to the cafe. So Tom, alors? Here we are in the cafe. There's been a slight dispute about whether to sit inside or out. We're sitting outside. We're sitting outside, which is as I wanted. I it is. I wanted to sit inside because I always imagine philosophers in Paris sitting inside the cafe. Yeah. Um, but, but as ever, you've bullied me. No, that's absolutely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> True. I think there's a general sense that it's actually a lovely day. It is gorgeous, it's isn't it? It's a beautiful Parisian day. Because just... you don't like Paris. or Are, no. are you being converted no. Tom, now Tom, to Tom, the I've, beauties I've, of... I'm uh, officially repenting. Are I you? actually... This is lovely. I'm really enjoying this. Paris is working her magic on you. I've never been in such nice weather. 
The city looks gorgeous, looks golden. The river Seine glistening in the in the sunlight. So Absolutely. Dominic, so you may actually come back after this, and if you do, I would uh, use my wise card. You would use your wise card um, as we're going to do now because we're going to order a coffee. Aren't Absolutely, we? we're going to use our wise cards for coffee. I will just say this: that whether you are taking on Rio or Rome, Miami or Mumbai, or in our case, Tom, Paris or Amsterdam. Now, here's good news. You will always get the mid-market exchange rate when you convert currencies. And Tom, I know you're passionate about avoiding markups. I don't. I hate markups. <laughs> you don't. You really and I don't hate like hidden fees. Hidden fees, and there are neither of those things. Um, so, as usual, a large lorry has just turned up, right? Uh, which always happens, and I knew this would happen, which is why I wanted to go inside. But I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not going to say I told Tom, you. Tom, so. I will mollify you now with a lovely <laughs> French coffee. What do you like? Uh, I would like a Here's café lait. Bonjour. Un café au lait pour... Euh, pour le monsieur. Pour, <laughs> ce, ce vieux gentilhomme. Et, et un café noir pour moi. Merci. Okay, let's talk philosophy. Go ahead. So part of the kind of the vibe in Paris in the 60s. Yeah. Um, they're very into their situationist, absurdist theatre. The transfiguration of the absurdity of bourgeois life. I knew you were going to bring all this stuff up. <laughs> so um, I, I know the answer to this. Yeah. Um, do you think that this has any influence on the see, course of Soissons Wheat? No, see, I don't, actually. <laughs> I think um, it's absolutely true that people are staging happenings and they are... I mean, existentialism is old, by the way, at this point. People often yeah. think yeah. existentialism and Sartre, Camus, all that stuff is one of the drivers of this. But I'm talking about Antonin Artaud, Absurdité, yeah. all that kind of thing. Uh, and also um, the rising French philosopher... Uh, Michel Foucault. Michel Foucault. So he's published Les Mots et Les Shows, which I think is, I can't remember what it's Words translated. Words and Things. Yeah, but it's not translated as that. I think, I can't remember. Order of Things, is it? Okay. I think the I'm, not, I'm not as familiar with Foucault's work um, as you are, Tom. But anyway, so, so in that, in Les Mots et Les Shows, he is essentially arguing that everything is oppression. Yes, of course. That, um, that culture, knowledge, patriotism are merely discourses of power. Yeah. I mean, again, I know that you, because I know your material is bent, that you will poo-poo this. <laughs> right. But but does the, this idea that, so the kind of the, the, the catch words for, for gaullism, yeah. patrie, yeah. All, that kind of, yeah. all, that, all that kind of thing. Well, la France. Yeah. Um, that these are simply discourses of oppression. Does that kind of steal the student leaders? Does it provide them with a kind of ideological backbone? I don't really think it does. I actually think that stuff becomes important after 68. Okay. And it does create the memory. Of, I mean, it does become associated with the memory of 68, particularly in the 70s. Because Foucault himself is in Tunis at the time, isn't he? He is, exactly. So, he's in North Africa. And he is, I mean, he's the philosopher who's most identified, I suppose, with the event more of 1968 and the spirit of 68. But he's in North Africa. And as the events unfold, He's actually writing to friends saying, What's going on? Well, I've got no idea what's going yeah, but on. That doesn't I don't matter. understand. I mean, it. you know, that, the influence of, of a philosopher isn't to be measured by whether the philosopher but himself in, is but in But this person. is not like Rousseau in the French Revolution. During the événement of May 1968, people aren't generally quoting Foucault. Okay. Foucault's name does not appear in okay. a lot of the coverage. Nobody is pointing the finger at. I think this is something that actually, I mean, some listeners to this may say, Oh, no, no, this is far too reductionist. But actually, I think a lot of this is actually generated afterwards. But okay. by the people in Poland, ex in cafes, okay. Okay. trying to explain what has happened. See, I actually think when you get down to the, 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 we talked about the trigger, and you were talking about this, well, we were both talking about the, the grimness of the suburbs and of the new university buildings and so on. The trigger is in many ways very, very mundane. So the place 
it's it's seven miles northwest of Paris, and it's a suburb called Nanterre. And in Nanterre, uh, they have started to build in 1962 basically one of these annexes, one of these overspill buildings, overspill campuses for the Sorbonne, where we were earlier. And there are about 12,000 students at Nanterre, and Nanterre is the middle of nowhere. It is basically a massive building site. The buildings haven't been finished. The students have kind of been lied to. They've been told all these tremendous facilities. But actually... um, as as the as the the Guardian, yeah, you know, the British newspaper put it at the time on the seventh of May, nineteen sixty-eight. It said Nanterre uh, was ironically meant as a model for the future, but it's turned out to have the academic atmosphere of a railway station. Not even that. No, because railway stations at least have kind of cafes. And... Right. So in Nanterre, there is nothing, and it it feels you're a long way from you're seven miles out of the city. You can't get into the city. The transport links are rubbish. There are no facilities. It is grim, unfinished kind of tower blocks. The lectures are really boring. And also, Dominic, I mean, I mean again, uh, the Anglo-Saxon sense of French life is that um, everybody is, is engaging in sexual congress. <laughs> this is just right. what the French are all about. Yeah. But actually, in Nanterre this time, it's, it's pretty monastic. I it mean, is because you can't... They, girls so, and boys are not allowed to... They're not allowed to mix effectively at night after dark. So basically, you're not allowed to visit um, the opposite sexes, halls of residence at night. You know, they're, they're all, you're all locked up in your kind of rival, you know, your, your monastery or your nunnery. Now, there are some students who are left-wing. There's no doubt about that. And those students will often go on about the police. And, I mean, there is a kind of institutional memory in the, in the sort of French student left of the extraordinary brutality of the French police. So the French police had killed hundreds of Algerians at the beginning of the 1960s, throwing them into the River Seine, yeah. and then killed unionists, straight trade unionists and protesters. So there is a sort of radical, a That's, small uh, radical group. That killing, I mean, how was it kind of 200? The figures um, I mean, are a disputed. Lot. With a lot. As many as 400 or possibly as few as 200 Algerians who were killed by the police the and thrown of, into the river. It's the theme of Cachet, that great it's film hidden. with uh, yeah. Daniel O'Tayen. And... Which is extraordinary. It tells you something about the difference between France and Britain. That in France, the CRS, the riot police, are famously, they are really hard. They are very hard men. And... We'll come on to this later. The the guy running the French, the, the Parisian police, Maurice Papon, who had been involved in Vichy, who has a very, very checkered record as deporting yeah. Jews from Bordeaux. And the, the chant is CRS SS. So there is this sort of sense that there are some, you know, there are there are issues, shall we say. And there's one student in particular at Nanterre who is synonymous with um I know you're a big fan of his, uh, Tom. Danny the Red. Danny the Red. Danny LaRouge. Daniel Kernbendi. Yeah, so he is the son of two German Jews who yeah. took refuge in France from the Nazis. And then obviously, when France becomes occupied, they have to live in hiding. Yes. So his background is very, you know, he lives under he, his whole life under the shadow of that. Absolutely. You know what he's studying, of course? Uh, sociology. Sociology, but of course. Of course. Um, he has uh, red hair. But when he comes to, to prominence, he is assumed to be um, basically communist, to be very much on the left. But actually, yeah. he isn't. He's a libertarian. No. Yeah, it's a, exactly. He's a, well, he became a green MEP. And he has a brilliant run-in, doesn't he, with um, uh, the, uh, the, the Minister of Youth and Sports. <laughs> yeah, it's like François Misoff. So uh, Misoff arrives at Nanterre in January 1968 to finally open the long-awaited sports centre and swimming pool. And Daniel Combendi is the leader of um, 
of, of the radical students and he barracks Nisov <laughs> and he shouts at him. It was such a French bit of behavior, this. He shouts at him and he says, your recent report on the problems of youth have said nothing about sexual problems. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. is exactly what I expect a <laughs> French student needed to say. And Misov replies, no wonder, with a face like yours, you have these problems. <laughs> and tells him to jump in the swimming pool to cool off. Yeah. And then Kumbendi shouts back, um, you're obviously a fascist because people who build swimming pools for young people, that's what Hitler did. <laughs> yeah. This is the, like the Hitler youth all over again. Yeah. I and mean, it's just a ludicrously French exchange, isn't it? Even um, though he is German. Yeah. Well, Kumbendi is kind of Franco-German, isn't he? Right. But this will become important later on, won't it? Exactly. Whether he's French or German. But this is all quite, you know, lower league kind of stuff. But on the 22nd of March, a group of students, including all these the sort of the small far left groups, and pleasingly, Tom, a small number of uh, poets and musicians. Yes, and, and theatre students. Theatre students. So, so my artists, effectively. Yes, clowns. <laughs> right. So these are the enragés. <laughs> right. they're, they're enraged. The great thing about this story is everybody behaves precisely as yes. they ought to. <laughs> it's carry on. <laughs> Carry on, French students. It is. So the mime artists, the clowns, the, the far leftists, whatever. <laughs> the absurdists, the situationists. They, um, they occupy an administration building at Nanterre and they hold a, a sort of meeting. This is very late 60s behavior, isn't it? And um, they hold a meeting to discuss, to attack the bureaucracy of the university and to, to talk about class discrimination at the university and also to talk about how they want to visit the girls. Yeah, this is, this is actually <laughs> what's at the basically at the root of this. I can see our producer Theo, who's French, laughing at our pitiful Anglo-Saxon <laughs> attempts to to explain this very important moment in world history. Now, the the administration of the university completely and utterly overreact. They're very top down. They're very autocratic. You know this this um this brilliant slogan that the students in Nanterre have. They shout, um, "Professors, you are as old as your culture," oh, which, of course, in the in the case of the Sorbonne, I mean, it is incredibly old. Yeah, I mean, it's seven hundred years old. Yeah, and it's never been closed down, has it? But that is what then happens. So, Tom, our, co our coffees are arriving. Ah, what a wonderful moment this is. Merci. Um, alors, I'll use my Wise app. Oh, so easy. Merci bien. Merci. So, Dominic, um, you've used your Wise app. Yeah, I have. Couldn't have been easier. Uh, let's get back to the story. So, as we were saying uh, before, the, the, the general culture is very authoritarian, very top-down, very paternalistic. And the administration of the university, and this is, this is a common theme in so many European universities in the late 60s, they completely overreact. So, even though actually the students then leave the building, they are called in for sort of disciplinary hearings, and they are suspended, the, the leaders of this. And what then that triggers is, of course, more protests by other students. So you get this building momentum throughout April 1968 with students at Nanterre protesting, bigger and bigger protests. And then on the 2nd of May, the rector of the Sorbonne, who's a Monsieur Roche, he shuts down the whole Nanterre campus. But not the Sorbonne. But not the Sorbonne in, in Paris itself, where we've just been. He thinks that will shut the whole thing down. Actually, what that does is it just moves the protests from Nanterre into the seven miles into the center, into the heart of Paris, where we are now. Because the students at the Sorbonne itself start to protest. They occupy a lecture theater. The police are called in. Hundreds of people are arrested. You know, it's again, completely heavy-handed. And hundreds of students are beaten by the riot police. And then the Sorbonne is shut down. For the first time in 700 years. Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, over, over what is ultimately 
a pretty fookling thing. I mean, it tells you actually how quiescent French student society had been in the 50s and 60s, that basically the authorities see what's actually pretty, you know, classic student protest behavior, standard stuff, and they completely overreact to it as though this is the beginning of the French Revolution. So a lot of historians say the big driver of May 1968 is really, it's, it's not even the stuff of Nanterre. It's actually police overreaction and police violence. So we talked before about the killing of the Algerian protesters. They'd killed trade unionists at Sharon Metro Station in 1962. There is a, an awful lot of resentment of the heavy-handedness of the police. And when they start to do this to, to middle-class students, and that's the key, to students who have a bit of a sense of entitlement, yeah. quite rightly, they think they're entitled not to be beaten up by the police. Yeah. They react. So by about the 6th of May, it's quite interesting to go through the chronology because often people assume this is all one great blur. But actually, if you go through it, you can see the escalation. On the 6th of May, the student union plus the lecturers union call big marches. They're planning big protest marches. Once again, the authorities completely overreact. They shut down large parts of the center of Paris. Isn't, isn't part of the reason for that the fact that the Vietnam peace conference is going on? in Paris. Right. And so de Gaulle is very worried about this. Yeah. And de Gaulle magnificently says that um, surely they're writing because they're, they're afraid of taking their exams. <laughs> well, so yeah. well, this is the extraordinary thing. His minister of education is a man called Alain Pervit. He goes out and he gives a speech saying to the students, let me remind you, your exams start within days. This is a very important moment for you. Stop messing around and do some revision. But de Gaulle is going so far as to say, well, they're writing so that the, the exams will be cancelled because they're, they're, they're afraid they're of them. They're frightened yeah. of failure. Snowflakes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Very Sam Brookian uh, <laughs> yes. approach from to go there. So the march is banned. Tens of thousands of people march anyway around where we are now. So we are quite close to the, to the river um, from our cafe. I'm across the, admittedly, the, the multiple lines of traffic. <laughs> um, and it's at this point that the students, as the police kind of weighed in, the students start building barricades. And anybody who's seen Les Miserables will know yeah. that the idea of building barricades, it goes to back to the Paris Commune and before that to the revolution. But you see, Dominic, this, this again, just to, to go back to um, absurdist theatre and the sense of people playing a part. Yeah. I mean, are they not playing the part Agreed. of French revolutionaries here? They are, absolutely. I believe, Tom, people on the internet would call this LARPing. Wouldn't they? I, it's a uh, live-action well, role-playing. I, I prefer to think of it being... Um, absurdist theatre. Absurdist theatre. No, they're like... Well, it's kind of situationist. You, you do something that yeah. then creates a situation that then becomes the drama, and then you feed into the drama. And so in this case, the drama that they're feeding into is a, is a revolution. Yeah, they're playing the part of revolutionaries, and then the revolution happens. Exactly, yeah. exactly right. Everybody... I mean, that's what we said was the great thing about this story. Everybody is playing a part. Yeah. It's playing the part that's been assigned to them. So this is the first night of the barricades, the first night of, of violence. So what night is that? 7th of May? 6th and 7th of 6th May. 6th and 7th of May. Uh, it's the first night where people are building barricades, where they are tearing up, pulling up bits of the street to throw at, um, at the police. There's a lovely report, actually, by the aptly named Peter Lennon in the, <laughs> in the Guardian the next day on the scene in the Latin Quarter. And he says, um, buses with their tires slashed and windows broken were strewn across the street. Cars upended with windows smashed marked the spots where the hardcore of the students put up fierce resistance to the police, who with nerves shattered after a full day of rioting, clubbed the demonstrators when they caught them, and sometimes bystanders with a sickening ferocity. 
Policemen and journalists with long years of experience of Paris riots almost disbelieved the evidence of their eyes as they viewed the scene of destruction. The roadway was torn up in numerous places where students had armed themselves with stones and pieces of tarmacadam. Shop windows were shattered and the blue pall of tear gas hung over the strangely silent Place Saint-Germain, usually the gayest of night spots. But tonight, like a quarter in morning. So it, British observers as well are, are getting into the whole idea. Oh, that they're absolutely. Watching, you know, they're yeah. loving it all as well. So, so I think actually, I mean, the most recent thing like this is the Paris Commune in 1871. Right. And this idea, so what had happened then, France had lost a war again to the Prussians. Um, within Paris itself, sort of left-wing groups, the, the communards, had set up their own revolutionary administration, this kind of, you tried to build their own utopia, which had then been crushed by the French army from outside, by, by the forces of reaction. And that shadow, I think, hangs over the whole story. Of, and 1968 right. yeah. feels to me like, um, as you would call it, a situationist theatrical version, or as I would put it, a, a cosplaying <laughs> yeah. of, of the Paris Commune they, of they, 1871. They, they, I mean, comparing themselves to the, the Commune is part of the slogan thing, right? It is, absolutely. So this, this first day of the barricades does not end anything. There are more demonstrations the next day. On the 7th of May, tens of thousands of people are now marching against police brutality. So it's not just students, it's also sympathizers. And they are chanting, long live the Paris Commune. But... So here's a question. One of the pieces of graffiti that appears on the streets of Paris at this time, it's kind of brilliant. I have something to say, but I am not sure what. <laughs> and one Again, of the things so that French. people talk about this period is that everybody is suddenly talking, that people are coming to cafes or sitting around and discussing things. Yeah. But, I mean, to protest against, I don't know, the Ancien Regime or oppression or whatever, I mean, yeah. these are very abstract words. Yeah. Do, they, do they have a kind of coherent body no. of... So basically, it's just a cry of anger and resentment at the man, Alom. Yeah. I mean, some listeners may think, oh, this is far too simplistic. They had genuine grievances. But remember. But are they asking? I mean, amid all this kind of generalized stuff about we're against oppression and yeah. colonialism or whatever, are they saying we want to be able to mix with girls and boys after lights or that, something. That has slightly been lost. So, so they're not protesting about specific issues no. like that or saying we want better facilities at the So now that the, the barricades have gone up, the stuff about like we'd actually like access to the girls' halls of residence after dark, that has slightly been lost. Because it's that, that's now... That's the tragedy of this, Tom. It's now a revolution. <laughs> that's the tragedy of the story. Yeah. The original perfectly reasonable <laughs> demand has been overwhelmed by nonsense. It's a French tragedy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so now it's become a protest against... It's even not just de Gaulle. So de Gaulle is kind of features sometimes people, the old man, enough of de Gaulle. But it's actually more a generalized protest against authority. And against old men. Against old men. I mean, this is true of most Western European and indeed the United States. The people in charge are old men. You know, Conrad Adenauer. Um, I mean, it's the, it's, the, it's the decade of Harold Macmillan and Harold Wilson in Britain, it's the Lyndon Johnson in the US. Yeah. Sort of grey grey men. It's always men, isn't it? It's never with, women. With, uh, who have lived through the Second World War. Yeah. And so isn't there also a sense that they are protesting against the legacy of the Second World War? You know, which in France has some currency that talk about um, the role played by the older generation in the liberation, say, of France is so much hypocrisy because yeah. actually they were, they were all collaborationists. But it's not merely and suffocating. And the taint of Nazism right. hasn't been... 
purge. Right, that it's not merely suffocating and stifling for the old men to be telling you about their own heroism, but it's a lie. That, say, Maurice Papon um, has this hideous record of collaboration. I mean, this is even more the case, obviously, in Germany with the Bader-Meinhof group, the, the Red Army faction. There, they are... It, it's even more overt that actually this regime that pretends to be a democratic regime is actually a successor state to the Nazis. Yeah. I mean, when people are shouting CRS, SS in it, France... It, it's literal. I mean, de Gaulle had a very good, de Gaulle had a very good line. He'd say, he said, basically, if they really were the SS, nobody <laughs> would be around anymore to, yeah. to shout, you know, I know the SS. Yeah. But de Gaulle is off the stage at this point. He's the president. The all-seeing eye, as so it were, So by this point, has he come to the conclusion that it's not just about students trying to avoid exams? I think he knows that something is going he wrong. He goes off to Romania. He goes he? off to Romania on a trip later in May. We'll talk about de Gaulle a little bit in the next episode. Well, a lot in the next episode. At this point, de Gaulle is veering between conciliation and repression. So sometimes he says, oh, we should just give the students what they want, tell them to go home. And then other times he says, just shoot them. You yeah. know, man up. Yeah. This is what he's sort of saying to his aides. I mean, it's just idle chatter. He doesn't mean it. But in the meantime, you know, more big demonstrations. The 10th of May is the really big night of the barricades, hundreds of arrests, hundreds of shop windows smashed. Uh, you know, so we are looking, we're right by the street and you can sort of see the cobbles. So basically people are digging in, uh, into the street, they're ripping up the cobbles and they're throwing them at the police. There's the sort of the cloud of tear gas that hangs over everything. The police are, co are consistently behaving very badly. So the same Guardian reporter Peter Lennon, a few weeks later, when he looks back at this, he says, you know, I saw the, the police beating wounded demonstrators. I saw them breaking into apartments, looting. But isn't this how violence escalates? Of course. That the, 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 the police are get, kind of getting brained by cobblestones. And then so, they react. So, so losing it and beating up students. And so the students get angrier and chuck more cobblestones. And, yeah. so, and so it goes on. Anyway, so this is all going on. And it's on TV, Tom. The one crucial thing we haven't mentioned. The two technological things that really matter in 1968 are one, radios and two, TV. So the students have cheap transistor radios. You know, they wouldn't have had them 20 years earlier. They have them now. That means they are listening to the news as it is happening. And that is further radicalizing them. And what also happens is because of TV, the rest of France is watching it on the next day's news. So they are watching the pictures and they are seeing the violence. And a lot of people are, some people are shocked by the students. Some people are shocked by the police and other people are enthused and excited and they want to join in. And so you get this sort of wave of occupations elsewhere in the country. It's now gone beyond Paris. Um, de Gaulle at this point does start to think, okay, this is getting out of control. He tells, um, well, he and his prime minister, Georges Pompidou, they agree to reopen the Sorbonne. They think maybe, okay, well, the university will closed. That'll come out. All that happens is they reopen it, the students occupy it, and the students now set up, this is where you have your, 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 all the stuff that you would love. The, the students are ha staging happenings. Brilliant. Absurdist theater. Right. Committees discussing the future of Vietnam. Yeah, a million flowers are blooming. A million flowers are blooming, exactly, exactly so. And actually, at this point, the police have pretty much been driven out of the quarter where we are now. So they've been, they've been driven out of large parts of the left bank. The barricades are up. The students say, you know, we're running it now. The Revolutionary Committee is running it. So you might well say, if you were of a Sambrookian bent, well, who cares about a load of students? They'll just get bored and all go home. But it's at this point that the French working class enter the story. So up to this point, I think they don't really give a damn about the students. You know, the students are doing their thing. People who are working They're in factories theater. Couldn't, 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 exactly yeah. wearing their polar necks and, yeah. you know, talking about the crimes of imperialism. 
the people who work in Renault car factories don't give a damn about that. But this is a point, I would say, in Western Europe generally, when workers are restive across the board. And, and that's why because, are they restive? Because the great economic miracle is stuttering, inflation is rising. But we're still in the, the, the 30 We're still in the 30 years. glorious years. But, you know, they, they don't know that they're still in the 30 glorious right, years. Okay, so they think things are stuttering. I mean, even a little bit of unemployment at this point, even, even an increase of a few thousand or tens of thousands, seems to people absolutely disgraceful and unwarranted. I mean, also, I think Julian Jackson, who I think is probably the best English language historian of modern France, author of the brilliant book on de Gaulle, he points out that one of the things that had really happened in France, away from the universities, away from the kind of the eyes of the newspapers, is that that economic miracle had been, as in Italy and other places, had been fueled by the movement of vast numbers of people who had previously been peasants. Right. Into so, the and cities. so this is why the, Britain has less of an economic recovery because that process had already happened in the 19th century. Exactly. So that's is why when you look at any chart of economic growth in the 50s and 60s, Britain looks so much worse than Italy, than, than France, because this had happened in Britain generations earlier. But in France, these, the people who are moving in, who are fueling the, the economic boom, whose hard work is basically paying for it, they're, they're immigrants or they're peasants, former peasants. And they are moving into the, the suburbs of the cities, as we know, you know, if you've ever been through them on the train even, yeah. quite grim, grey, bleak places where they feel miserable and they feel a bit like the students, actually. And are they inspired by what they see of the students on TV. I mean, you said that they don't care about the students, but they must to a degree because I think otherwise they wouldn't be piling in. Yeah, I think protests and, well, one of the lessons of what happens in 1968 across the world is that these things are infectious. Yeah. That people think, well, if these pampered middle-class princelings can demand their rights, why can't I? Yeah. So it starts in, in Nantes uh, or near Nantes. There's a, an aviation plant, Sud Aviation. And... There, the workers go on strike. They want better working conditions. It's often more about conditions than pay, actually. They want better working conditions, better pay. They end up locking the management in their offices. And then partly because the news is traveling so fast because of TV and radio, other workers nearby start occupying their factories. There's a strike at a Renault plant near Rouen. And then that spreads to the huge Renault manufacturing plants around Paris. So at a place called Flans, which is in the Valley of the Seine, and at Bilancourt which is a suburb of, of Paris. So, I mean, these are massive, massive plants. So to reiterate questions, so, so um, Red Danny, yeah. Daniel Cohn-Bendit, yeah. says later on that um, the workers and the students, you know, they were never a joint force. Yeah. And, and he said that um, the workers wanted a radical reform of the factories, wages, etc. Students wanted a radical change in life. So there is the kind of the nebulous demands that the students are making. Yeah, what on earth do the students want? But, but the workers, are their demands specific are they saying we want you know such and such a pay rise we want uh shorter hours we want improved conditions and these are the conditions we want improved or again is it just a kind of general we're going on strike because uh we want to overthrow the government do you know what tom i think it's yes and no so let me just answer that in a second to give us some listeners some sense of how much this spreads i said it starts on the 14th of may by the 18th of May, 2 million workers are on strike. By the 23rd, 10 million workers are on strike. That's two-thirds of the French workforce. Now, why has this happened? I think their union reps absolutely want very specific... I mean, that's the job of a union rep. Yeah. 
they want very specific. You know, we want an increase in pay. We want a, a, a shorter working week, a shorter working day, more time off at lunch. All these little things, better health and safety, all the stuff that basically you would want your union rep to ask for. But the workers themselves, I mean, go back to Junior Jackson. He says the strikes reveal they want not only better working conditions, but also to be heard and to be noticed. And I think that's really important that these are people who are completely, you know, they are, they are not glamorous. They're not fashionable. They're not very articulate. And they don't appear in the French culture of the 1950s and 60s. You know, the sort of Jean-Luc Godard or the films about kind of cool students in, you know, Breton tops. Yeah, Maoist uh, theater students. All of that stuff. Yeah. These people don't appear in that at all. They are shut out and they feel that they are living in a very authoritarian, top-down society where you're expected to be deferential to the old men of the 1930s and 40s. Okay, but, and, and the representative of old men is de Gaulle. So is the aim of overthrowing de Gaulle as president and his government part of what, they, of what this general strike comes to have as its object? Well, first of all, the Communist Party, we'll come on to this in the second episode, the Communist Party do not want a revolution. They do not want... Um, well, they must kind of want a revolution. I mean, they're communists. No, they're, they're communists absolutely don't. Do they point. not want a revolution? They uh, think this I is mean, bourgeois. in the long run, they do. They think uh, this is bourgeois nonsense. They think it's not in keeping with their plan. It's not in keeping with the course of history. No, but, it, um, but in the long run, they want a revolution. Oh, in the, okay, fine, in the long run, but they want a revolution that they have planned and led and right. the conditions are right. They think, as their reaction to this at first is, they tell their people, don't have anything to do with this. Bourgeois this is nonsense. all just not bourgeois nonsense. Yeah. This is mime artists. We are, you know, <laughs> yeah. a true communist never interferes with a mime artist. Yeah. I think there is a sort of sense among ordinary French workers, it's not so much that they want to overthrow the Gaulle, it's that they think de Gaulle is irrelevant, actually. He really is irrelevant at this stage. He's, as you said, he goes to Romania. He's but out they, of the country. Because some of them are chanting, um, I, I see it in your notes, the, the slogan, 10 years, ça suffit. Yeah, that's enough. Uh, so that's enough. Exactly. Um, and that's referring to the decade that de Gaulle has had in Paris. But president. I don't think he, that is driving it. I think they right. shout that as in, almost as it were in passing. I mean, just one last point about the... Um, we'll, we'll touch on this again next time in the next episode. The government does offer the trade unions basically everything they want. They get offered a few days later a 35% increase in the minimum wage, um, lots of pay for the strikers, pay increases all round, better conditions, all this. And actually, when the leader of the big union, the, the CGT, the big communist union, he goes to the big Renault plant at Bilancourt and he says, we've got this tremendous deal. They shout him down. They say, not good enough. Hmm. And at that point, I think what's happened is that the the very specific demands of the kind of keen union activists have become overwhelmed. So again, a bit like the students then. Yeah, the, yeah. by the, the tragedy of the... Uh, <laughs> of the okay, of and, just, and one final question. Yeah. Um, is Cohn Bendit right when he says that basically the students and the workers are like parallel lines? Yeah, I think so. And I think that's actually a, a, not just a French story. That is a story everywhere in the Western democratic world where you have um, protests in the 60s and 70s. Now, normally what happens, and you see this in America a lot, um, but also in France and in Germany and in Italy, everywhere people try to, they dream of a worker-student alliance. The students will say, well, we are oppressed proletarians just like you. In a different way, of course. Yeah. <laughs> You know, okay, mummy and daddy have a holiday home, and uh, <laughs> yeah. but but our our oppression is is just as pernicious. 
and people will try. So students will go out to the factories. This happens in France. Students go to the factories and they also... Do they stage... Um Situation is drama. Probably, probably do. But they also, they will get workers, you know, car workers, to come and address some of these sort of revolutionary committees they've set up in the sort of faculty buildings of the Sorbonne. It's so Soissons Wheat. Well, it is. It's so Soissons Wheat. And these scenes actually often are quite painful. They're just quite embarrassing because their demands are so different, their life experiences are so different. However, I mean, we can laugh about this now, but at the time... You know, if we if we were here in May 1968 to sort of paint a bit of a picture for the listeners, we would have the place would have been. There would have been students everywhere. There would have been teach-ins, theatrical shows, and people talking. This is what people remember: people sitting and talking, people talking, slogans everywhere. All those famous yeah. slogans: "Il est interdit d'interdire." It's forbidden to forbid. The famous, the famous one we're talking about: ripping up the cobbles um, under the paving stones, the beach, sous le pavé, la plage. And they, they did do a de Gaulle poster. So there'd be a picture of de Gaulle covering the mouth of a young protester. And the slogan says, be young and shut up. So this sort of sense that you don't have a voice. Um, and, and the most famous one, the one that you still see, we could go and buy a souvenir t-shirt if you're so inclined, Tom. Um, be realistic, demand the impossible. Soyez réaliste, demandez l'impossible. Well, and, and that is the ultimate expression, I would say, of the sort of amorphousness, the meaninglessness. I mean, this is my Anglo-Saxon reductionism. Mm. Be realistic, demand the impossible. What does that mean? Lots of people listening to that will say, oh, that's very profound, Dominic. Don't be so mean-spirited. It, but, I mean, it actually sounds like an advertising slogan. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> it's the kind of thing that you be would realistic. have on, on an advert. Yeah. I think we should take a break at this point. So right. we'll, we'll do a, another episode on this. So what we will do next time, Tagore has been off stage, we'll bring him on stage. We'll look at his reaction we will look at arguably the most dramatic day in modern, certainly in post-war French history, at the end of May, when de Gaulle flees Paris, when it's not clear whether he's fleeing into exile or whether he's raising an army yeah, to, march on, to march on the city, yeah. to retake the city. And we'll look at what happens and the legacy of 1968 for France yeah. and indeed for the Western world more generally. Excellent. Excellent. Great stuff, Dominic. Thanks so much. And um, thank you also to Wise... Um, and uh, Wise Dominic have actually created a travel guide to Paris. Oh, that's good. But um, So if you want to visit the locations yeah. that we've been uh, talking about. If you want to throw um, cobblestones and <laughs> yes. uh, paint slogans on walls, this is your chance. Of, absolutely. So it includes lots of the locations that we've talked about in today's episode. Um, and Dominic, if people want to learn more about how you can travel like you, a historian. Most people would want to travel, um, wouldn't they? And spend like a local. Yeah. And then they can visit wise.com slash rest is history. Wise.com slash rest is history or click the link in today's episode description but we will uh, see you next time where we will um, finish off this extraordinary story uh, Les Evenements uh, the events uh, of 68 Au revoir Bye bye <laughs>